and welcome again to Locked in Science. This week we're going to delve back through our archives and listen to some stories from earlier in the year. I will be talking to Jen Sanger about a study about the effect of bushfire on forest regeneration in southern Australia. And Claire will be talking to David Baker Gabb about National Threatened Species Week and particularly the Plains Wanderer from back in September. So please stay tuned. Now, you might remember a few months ago, if you can remember back that far, there were some other things going on in the world, including um, some pretty major bushfires in large parts of the country, which, um, you know, the aftermath of which is still being felt everywhere uh, that they were affected. But uh, we sort of have lost a bit of that out of the news cycle. But um, I have with me on Lost in Science uh, this week, um, Dr. Jen Sanger from the University of Tasmania, who is a bushfire researcher and, well, general ecological researcher, I guess. Um, thanks for joining us, Jen. Thanks for having me. So your, what's, what is your background? What, what sort of led you to bushfire research? Uh, well, so I'm a forest ecologist, so I study a lot of things, different things to do with uh, forests. And um, this is actually my first study looking at the effect of bushfires, but I have been looking at um, different forest types um, for the last couple of years. Um, yeah, And yeah, and we've just had some, the year before last, so um, January 19, the summer before last, um, we had some pretty severe bushfires down here in Tasmania, and it burnt some quite large areas across the state. Uh, one of the areas that with the worst affected was a place called the Huon Valley, uh, which is down south of Hobart. Now, this area, um, there's a lot of uh, forestry operations going on in this area. So in, in the region, you have a kind of a patchwork of, of logged areas and then older growth forests and also plantations as well. After the fires, when we had a look at the satellite imagery, there, there seemed to be a pattern where the areas that had been logged seemed to be burnt a lot more than the old growth forests. So we decided to do an official study to look at this phenomenon to see uh, what we could find. Had anyone done work on that sort of thing previously to your work? There'd been some studies uh, from the mainland. So there'd been one from uh, Victoria where they looked it to see uh, after the Black Saturday fires and uh, they found that in the forest there, uh, the um, the fires had actually burnt a lot more severely in forests that had been recently logged. So from about uh, the age of about seven to about like 30, uh, 39 years, I think, um, these forests in that age actually burnt a lot more severely than older growth forests. Yeah, and there are obviously there are different types of forest within Australia and Australia is a very big place. Were they similar types of forest 
that they'd found on the mainland that you have in Tasmania as well? Yeah, so we both have uh, very similar forests, um, wet eucalypt forests, so that can have a number of species, but both Tasmania and uh, Victoria have a species of eucalypts uh, called Eucalyptus regnans. So that's called the mountain ash in Victoria and it's called the swamp gum in Tasmania. And yeah, they're, they're two of the main forest types um, that are logged in both Victoria and Tasmania. And so um, when you when you went to look at these forests in Tasmania, you found similar things to what they had found in other places as well? Yeah, so our, our study found that logging regrowth and also plantations burn at a higher severity than the old growth forests. There was some fires in other parts of Tasmania earlier on, a couple of years earlier, in areas where people were saying they hadn't seen bushfires before is that sort of coming up in other areas that there are parts of Tasmania burning that don't don't usually burn under climate change our summers are getting a lot drier and that's something to predict that's predicted to uh, keep increasing in the future so what we're seeing is that there's areas of the bush uh, that are, that are a lot more dry than usual in the summertime. And what we've also we've been seeing is um, we've been having a lot more dry lightning storms. So typically lightning, dry lightning storms or lightning in general in Tasmania is quite a rare thing. But um, yeah, with climate change, we're actually seeing a lot more lightning, which is starting uh, fires in some really remote um, areas of Tasmania. So uh, I think it was back in 2016, we had some fires up in the Alpine area, um, which burnt some really significant trees. Um, so some very old um, pencil pines um, got destroyed. Some of these trees could be um, over 2000 years old. And there was a lot of really sensitive Alpine vegetation that got damaged as well. And I guess if they're in, uh, you know, if they're they're in remote areas, it's not like anyone can get in to, to fight those sort of fires either. Yeah, so it makes it a real challenge uh, when we have these fires happening in such remote places. Uh, our parks and wildlife team are actually really exceptionally well trained in this, and um, they've um, have have done some really great work to help, um, especially in the January fires in 2019. They did a lot of work to keep um, these fires out of some really sensitive areas. But yeah, it does, it does um, present a very big challenge. And um, yeah, so hopefully we'll can, we can see more resources being put into getting proper firefighting equipment and getting some helicopters down here in Tasmania. Would be uh, be pretty handy, especially for yeah some of the some of the areas that um, I've I've driven through some parts of Tasmania and I can't see how else you'd get in there to be honest. But um, back to the back to the uh, to the growth that you were looking at and and uh, in the Huon Valley, it's only early days yet because we're only in May. But um, are you going back to look at the regeneration of those areas to see if the the fire intensity is um, causing issues with the regeneration of those areas that have been burnt as well? Look, it's a very good question. And it's something that, um, that I hope someone will be looking at uh, for sure. Um, so I, I feel like the, the forest will be re okay there. Um, our forests are, are fairly well adapted to fire, um, infrequent fire, mind you. Um, but I, I feel like they'll, um, have a chance to survive. The thing that we really need to worry about is repeated fire. So uh, these 
these wet eucalypt forests that we have probably only see fire maybe, I don't know, 200 to 300 um, year intervals. So um, what we're actually seeing in Victoria, um, in the central highlands and around Gippsland, is that they're actually getting fires there and or really big fires, what they class as mega fires. They're getting uh, fires like that um, sometimes every 20 years, or sometimes even more frequently than that. And so what's happening there is these uh, eucalypt trees don't really get a chance to grow up and, and, and uh, get to an age where um, they can set seed again before another fire goes through. So a lot of these fires will actually kill some of these species. So mountain ash and um, the swamp gum, uh, which I mentioned before, um, that actually gets killed by fire. And so uh, when a fire goes through, there needs to be enough time for that tree to grow up and mature and set seed um, before um, another fire goes through. So otherwise it'll just completely disappear from the ecosystem. So really what, what will happen is if there's an increasing frequency of the fires, you may get a change in the makeup of the, of the forest that's actually there over time. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what they're finding in Victoria. Oh, that's, that's an obvious concern um, to, to uh, take into account. And um, I guess this kind of research does bring into question whether logging is actually an economically uh, viable uh, industry, in, in certainly in some places, if it's going to cause uh, issues for the for the ecosystems that it relies on for its, um, you know, for its basis. Um, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the show, Jen. Um, it was really good to catch up with you and hear about uh, some of the research you're doing. And it is an important issue and uh, nice to, well, you know, uh, makes it makes a nice change to be talking about something else uh, for a change on the show. But um, Obviously, environmental science is very important to us. So thanks for uh, telling us about what you've been up to. Thanks for having me. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations to boldly go where no radio has gone before. has a bad track record for animal extinctions. In 2018, we were the world's fourth worst country for the number of animals that have become extinct on our watch. Now, to bring awareness to animals and plants that are on the brink of extinction this week, it is National Threatened Species Day. And although there are many threatened species on this list, regrettably, today we are shining the light on one in particular the rarely sighted but extremely special bird, the Plains Wanderer. And to help us learn more about this bird is leading world expert ornithology, expert ornithologist, Dr. David Baker-Gab. David, welcome to Lost in Science. Good evening. 
Now, David, let's start with the basics. What is a Plains Wanderer? A Plains Wanderer is a small ground-dwelling bird. If you held up the palm of your hand and it was standing on tippy toes, then it would be about from your wrist to the tip of your fingers or the size of a quail, if that okay. makes any is on the money. And they're quite unusual to look at. They're a bit lanky when, and they can move quite quickly through the grass. Unusually, females are larger and more colourful than the males. Right. Um, and that ties in with their breeding system. So the female defends the territory of about 400 metres wide or nine hectares or so. And she has this low mm, 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 call, a bit like a cow's call, I suppose. I suppose. And, and so she attracts the boys and she teams up with a male and then she lays a clutch of eggs. And they go through all these really interesting displays and he sits on them and she makes sure he does. And then once she's got him well bedded down there, she teams up with another boy. <laughs> Um, and he, the males do all the chick rearing. It's a bit like the old man emu, where the males do the chick rearing. And there's a link to our really ancient avifauna. So there's been fossil plains wanderer-like birds found in Australia that have been over 30 million years old. Wow. So when we look at the links, then we see that the closest relative to a plains wanderer, which is still very, very distant, is in South America, a seed snipe in South America. So that's a link back to the old Gondwana supercontinent days. So it is part of a very special, but ever diminishing club of Australian uh, birds. It sounds like these are incredibly unique birds in the ecosystem, but also the way that they behave. Where do you find these incredible birds? Well, the key areas for them nowadays are the northern plains of central Victoria, so up around Echuca, but on the plains there, and the New South Wales Riverina Plains, so north of Deniliquin, between Hay and Deniliquin. So those are the two strongholds. There used to be lots of them on the plains west of Melbourne. They're hardly there at all now. They used to be on the plains west of Adelaide, not there at all now. So there's lots of places where they used to be, but we've lost about 99% of the grasslands, native grasslands, which is their have a key habitat, their only habitat, south of the divide and about 95% north of the divide in Victoria. Then there's a key lead into why they are so endangered. In fact, they're mm. critically endangered. Right, they're critically endangered. There must be um, very specific threats to them then. Yes, past threats, of course, have been basically the clearing of that habitat, which means that the grasslands of, say, Victoria's Western Volcanic Plains and the grasslands of Victoria's Northern Plains, which are different types of grasslands, are both classified as critically endangered, just as the Plains Wanderer is critically endangered. In fact, the level of endangerment of the Plains Wanderers and its uniqueness is such that the in the 2018, it was assessed to be the number one species in the world, that's of 10,000 plus species of bird, in terms of its risk of extinction and its genetic uniqueness. 
And why it's genetically unique is that it's in a family all of its own. So if you think of other critically endangered birds, like the orange-bellied parrot, has four other neophema parrots which are in the same genus as it. I have to interrupt you here. Did you say neophema? Yes. What does that mean? Well, that's the genus name right, okay. of the species. So every, every, every species has a genus and a species. Um, so the blackbird is Turtus merula. So the genus Turtus with the, you know, the species name merula. So, um, and then, so the swift parrot, which is also critically endangered, is in a genus all of its own. So it has no other species that are related mm. to it. Mm-hmm. And then the plains wanderer is in a family all of its own. Right. So it has no, nothing that's even remotely related to it. So the OBP is like a twig on the bird's tree of evolution. The swift parrot's like a branch and the plains wanderer is like a limb. So right. if you lose a limb off the tree, it's really significant. It also sounds a bit lonely for the plains wanderer. Yeah, I, I guess it is. I mean, it's, a, it's the thylacine was in exactly the same category in a family all of its, line, of its own. So when we lost the thylacine, the world lost something very, very significant. And the plains wanderers in the same class. And so why, why do you think that um, people don't know about the plains wanderer, though? Well, I think it's mainly because it's small and cryptic. So, you know, they're pretty hard to find out in the grasslands. And indeed, when I started working on them over three decades ago, most of the bird twitching fraternity who are desperate to see, you know, as many bird species they can, could only dream of seeing a plains wanderer. They just didn't know how to find them. It's just like how we found the night parrots more recently. Yeah. People would dream of, you know, certain people would dream of seeing a night parrot. And has that changed now? Do we know more about their biology and their behaviour so we have a better chance of seeing them? What's, what's been your experience so far in, your, in all your time um, twitching oh, yes, it's, and researching it's, them? It has changed a lot. You know, 30 years ago, there was virtually nothing known about them. Now we know what sort of grasslands they live in, what structure of grasslands they require, and it's reasonably specific as to what they require. And, um, you know, we know what they eat and what the threats, most of the threats to them are. Um, Dealing with those threats is obviously, you know, something that is still, we're still working on, but we, we are making considerable progress. And interestingly, some new technologies have helped quite considerably towards that progress in very recent times. So we now, we used to do just spotlighting at night for them, but now we've used thermal cameras. And they're about three times as good at finding birds and many other things. You just see the heat signature and then you can check it out. But they just have much bigger range than a spotlight does. And the other thing that I've been using um, quite recently is song meters. So these Mm -hmm. are a brick-sized recording device with um, two little microphones on them. And they're programmed to come on to sunrise and sunset. And they record that oom, oom, oom call, which the ladies are giving. And so we found out a whole lot of of new paddocks, uh, or new grasslands on private land where these birds are. And... um, you know, we're finding out 
because they call a lot when they're breeding and not much when they're not, then you get you know, lots of insights into uh, when the breeding seasons are. So these girls will go more than once a year. Like many things only breed once a year, but um, if the conditions are right, then they'll breed in spring as usual, but then if they get a big dump of rain, they'll breed again in summer and maybe again in autumn as well. So they have plenty of potential to recover quite rapidly if the grasslands are well managed. And many grasslands up to more recent times, say go back three or four years, were not well managed. Um, a lot of them were overgrazed in hot, dry summers. And then when it rained, it got too dense. Now, the reason they got too dense is that they have these weedy introduced grasses in them. Mm. And so if you get a big dump of autumn rain, right. they grow very densely. Yeah. So interestingly, this is a national park, for example, that has to have some grazing. So you put some sheep in. Yeah. When those weedy grasses are nice and fresh and green, the sheep will eat those because mm. it's like ice cream compared to all that straw stuff around, <laughs> the native stuff. And as soon as they've done the job, you get them out. And right. they don't go back in there for the rest of the year. Okay. So that's the sort, that's how you manage the grassland or one of the main reasons, main ways of managing it. And why is it that Plains Wanderers need that specific sort of open grassland? Do we understand the relationship there? Yeah. So initially, if you go back prior to the introduction of these weedy grasses, along with the Europeans who spread them around, there was tussocky grasslands, native grasslands with spaces between them. Now, plains wanderers like to weave their way between those grasslands as they pick seeds and insects off the ground. And the other thing is when they see, these are fairly low growing grasslands. So they're not going to be more than about 10 centimetres high. So plains wanderers standing on tippy toes can easily see over the top of them. Mm. And so they see a ground predator. Right, and they okay. just run away and <laughs> through the grasses and they can really run. Um, and so when it's all choked up dense, they can't run away so easily and they can't, and then they have to fly. And mm -hmm. flames wanderers are not very good flyers. And there's plenty of birds of prey around over those plains. And if they see a planes wanderer taking off, you know, like a lumbering old bomber fighter, you know, then <laughs> they're lunch. Um, you know, the other birds, um, things like larks will ring up in a circle and now climb a, a bird, of, bird of prey or um, stubble quail are very fast flyers and they just explode out and then dive into dense grass. So planes wanderers are not able to do that. And so, yeah, that's why they tend to run away from predators or use their intent and, you know, incredible camouflage to just hide. And um, I have one more question about um, the Plains Wanderer. Does it, is it a nocturnal bird? I heard you saying you, you do spotlighting. Is, is that because it comes out at night or is that for a different reason? People thought they were nocturnal, um, but in fact, they're not. And the birds in captivity, we can talk about that, they certainly um, show that they're very active during the day. But the thing is that if, when you're driving it around with a spotlight at night, they haven't evolved to um, avoid a 100-watt quartz halogen bulb um, <laughs> shining a light on them. So, you, you know, they stand up with, and they're a little bit dazzled and 
so you can easily, easily see them. As I'm sure we all would be, David, when we have a bright light shone in our eyes. <laughs> These things, you did right. Uh, so it is National Threatened Species Day, um, and I'm curious to sort of hear about what the current programs are to conserve the plains wanderer. One of the main programs to ensure that the species doesn't go extinct is captive breeding. So there's captive um, facilities at the Werribee Open Range Zoo in Victoria, at Taronga's Dubbo Zoo, and at Monato Zoo in South Australia. So they all cooperate with each other. And for example, uh, the Werribee team recently sent 10 birds to Monato to get them started on the breeding program. Oh, Werribee's been pretty successful at breeding. breeding Fantastic. Well, they were hoping to do trial releases with radio trackers on them and so forth now, but you know, coronavirus has got in the way of that. So mm. that's been put off till probably March next year. Um, and so, yeah, so we need to run these trials to make sure that um, with any uh, issues that arise are quickly addressed because we're dealing with critically endangered birds here. And where they're being released into, um, well, some will be government reserves and some of them trust for nature of grassland reserves and others um, private land, probably which have covenants on them. So there's been a substantial increase in the number of covenants um, which private landholders, farmers, have been happy to have on, on placed over their grasslands. They get a financial recompense for doing that. And so they need to manage those grasslands such that they always retain good cover on them, but not too dense, which is quite a sophisticated thing to do, but farmers have been doing that sort of thing all their lives. So they're obviously the best people to do it. So that's where we're making some considerable progress with that particular program. Always short of money, of course, because you've got to pay the farmers to put these really top grasslands under a covenant. And these covenants are in perpetuity. So that even if the place is sold, they're there for the life of, well, they're there forever. And they've got a management plan. Okay, so, oh yeah, and and for our listeners out there who might um, hear about the Plains Wander and wonder, I guess, you know, where they can find out more information or where they can help, uh, where would you direct people, David? Um, have a look at the Trust for Nature's website. Have a look at the Zoos Victoria's website. Um, if you've got any kids that are interested in threatened species, both of those organisations have... Um, uh, small people friendly uh, information, particularly uh, Zoos Victoria. That's you know they specialise in that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so that's where I'd go probably. How how are we going to keep the plains wanderer safe from the threats for as long as possible into the future? Well, establishing the reserves and the covenants are really important because even today we're still losing grasslands to cultivation. On the Northern Plains and this autumn, um, five grassland paddocks were cultivated for the first time in probably 70 or 80 years. Um, there's not any laws in place that will prevent that happening at the moment. Um, and we've seen things happening with the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act that doesn't give you much um, confidence that that will not persist into the future. So people can 
go and contact their local member to let them know that um, these are the issues that are important to them as well? Certainly, and important to all threatened species. So, yeah, more power to the, to the pen is it's always a good thing. And then there's, you know, the organisations that um, are doing the work that you can, su- you can support. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us this week for National Threatened Species Day. And I truly hope that the Plains Wanderer will continue wandering for a very long time to come. That's all we've got time for for this week and we are rapidly running out of time. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We are broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. And if you would like to tune in next week, Chris, Stu and Claire will get locked in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.